0: Well, good morning. It's wonderful to be here with you. If uh, if you're visiting, my name is Josh Walker. I'm one of the uh, elders here at the church, so I'm not the regular preacher. So if you don't like it, um, come back next week. There'll be someone different. Um, if you do, well, then you just got to wait a few months till I have to do this again. They beat me into it. Um, you know, just as as we were sitting there and we were singing, I was reminded of, um, of one of the parables that Jesus told. And Jesus talks about how there's, there's two kinds of men. And he, he ta- tells the story about a man who builds his house upon a rock and one who builds his house upon the sand. And he says that you, you can't tell the difference at first until the storm comes. And when the storm comes, the one who's built his house upon the, the sand is going to get washed away, the foundation is going to get washed away. But the one who's built his house upon the rock will stand. And Jesus said, the man who built his house upon the rock is the, is the one who hears my word and obeys it. And I was just struck because it, we live in such a time of kind of coming uncertainty that there are storms that are coming into our world. And I, I was just thinking about that and how it's exposing how for some of us we have built our house upon the sand. And that I'm just so thankful that, that we, we started through the book of Daniel because what it does is it gives us a rock and a foundation to, to build our lives on, a certainty, a reality about who God is, what he has done, and what he promises he will do that we can we can talk this morning about the rock of the reality of God's word and of the ability for us to to obey it in Christ of all the promises that we have in Jesus of forgiveness of sins and and of the um the future resurrection and the new heavens the new earth of all these things that are both realities now and also promises for the future and we we can look at all of that and and just understand that okay we can build our lives upon the rock but for some of us, I think we're, it's just being exposed that our house has been built upon the sand, that there's uncertainties, and, and when fear rises, fear is the result of you not having built your house upon the rock, unless it's fear of the Lord, of course. So as we come back to Daniel, if, if you need a Bible, there, there's guys that can hand you a Bible. Just put your hand, hand in the air, and they'll, they'll get it to you. And feel free to look at the table of contents if you want to know where Daniel is. It's kind of somewhere right about the middle. So we're in Daniel chapter 8. We're continuing our series this summer. And just as a reminder, there's, there's three main themes um, for Daniel that we've been talking about. First of all, to be faithful to God far from home, right? That Israel is in exile. They've been taken out of their land. They're now in Babylon. And this is how to live faithful in exile. And just a reminder, something Todd talked about a couple of weeks ago is that we all live in exile, Sometimes we, we get very comfortable and we forget the reality that, no, we are strangers. This is not our home. Our home is with Christ. It's in the new heavens and the new earth and we long for that. So we are strangers, exiles, sojourners here. So how do we learn to live faithful? far from home. The second theme is serving within the system, that within whatever system God places us while we're far from home, while we're in exile, that we see within Daniel, this is how you actually serve within that system. It's not trying to run away from it, trying to get out of it, but within the context, still being faithful to serve within that system. And then the third one is that no matter how things look, God is in control. And this is really the key one of all three, because the only way to be able to do the first two is if you get the third one. Right? The only way to live faithful far from home is when you know that God's in control even when it starts to look really messy, even when it starts to look really ugly. The only way to serve within the system is to be able to acknowledge and say because God is the one that's sovereign. He's the one that's in control. Right? We think about the system that we live in and, and, and we get all up in arms. Right? We get, we get all upset about all kinds of things. And I think compared to Babylon compared to Rome, compared to all these places where the biblical writers lived in the midst of a system that was so much more corrupt than anything we're coming close to. And they saw what it looked like to live faithful in the midst of those systems. And the vision we have in Daniel chapter eight is really an affirmation for us of that third one, that God is in control. That's the emphasis of this vision. And and now as we're, so we've been going through these prophecies and I, I think Christians in general get kind of off off the rails a little bit with prophecy. We have a tendency to kind of want to look at all the details and figure out exactly what's the point of this and you know, what, what, how many days and what exactly, when that isn't God's point. God's point of giving prophecy is so that when you're in the midst of persecution, you're in the midst of struggle, you're in the midst of the trial, that you will be encouraged and know that God is still in control. And I'm pretty sure that if you were in the middle of persecution and your family's been sold into slavery and you've got the death penalty unless you repent of your faith, you're not going to be thinking, well, I wonder exactly which day that's going to happen, right? You're going to instead be saying, oh, God, thank you that you are in control. Thank you for the glorious reality of that. And that's not to say that the details don't matter because they do. And God shows us his control by the details that he gives us and how those are fulfilled. But that's the intention behind it. And I I want to illustrate it this way. Just imagine that you were just starting to read the Lord of the Rings. Yes, they were books before they were movies. You're getting ready to read the Lord of the Rings for the first time. And I look at you and I say, so the first thing you need to know is this. There's going to be this group called the Fellowship of the Ring, they're going to set out to destroy the ring, but it's going to get really ugly, and they're all going to get split up, and Boromir is, in fact, going to try to kill Frodo. But don't worry, because Frodo makes it to Mount Doom, and the ring is destroyed, and Sauron and Mordor are defeated. All right, so let's say I told you all that. Now, in a sense, I'm giving you a prophecy. Right? I'm telling you here's what's going to happen in the book. Now, would you believe me? Well, would probably believe to what degree you think I'm a Lord of the Rings nerd, Right? Has he actually read the book, maybe seen the movies? Now, if it was something a little more obscure, then you'd wonder, but most of us kind of know the story now, right? But let's say you didn't know the story and you start reading it. At the point when you get to the first stuff I said, which is in the first book, you'd realize, oh, this guy knew what he was talking about, which would then give you confidence for what I told you happens at the end, right? So what God often does is he gives us prophecies of, of something that's gonna happen in the near future because everything we see in Daniel 8, has already happened for us. For Daniel, it was 400 years in the future, but for us, it's already happened. And so we can look back and go, okay, so those early chapters, in a sense, if you think of God as the author of the story of reality, what he did is he told Daniel, hey, here's some chapters that are a few, you know, a few centuries down the road, but now we look back and we can see that, and God has told us about chapters that are still down the road for us, and so now we can have confidence in those. Right, So that, that's the role of this prophecy for us because for Israel, the prophecy was very specific for something that was gonna happen to them that was gonna be incredibly difficult and destructive and he wanted them to have confidence. But that's past for us. And so it's for us to realize what's gonna happen in the future. And you realize that, that when, you would read the story differently if I already told you how it was gonna, now if you hadn't read Lord of the Rings, I'm sorry I wrecked it for you. But it doesn't actually wreck it for you, Right? Because the tension's all still there, right? The drama's all still there. I've read the book three times, right? Obviously, the, it's all still there, even though we know the end, and that's the way life is, right? Just because we know the end and that Jesus wins doesn't mean that life's easy and happy, right? There's still the drama. There's still the difficulty. There's still everything, and yet it's different. Every piece of it is different because we know the end, because we know where it's all leading, So God, as the author, has given us some of the chapters. God has told his people some of the chapters that would come to pass in the middle of the story so that we will have ultimate confidence in the chapters that he promises to come to pass at the end of the story. The reason I like talking about God as an author is because sometimes when we think about prophecy, it's as if God is an observer of what's going to happen and God saw in the future. No, he is the author of this story. He is the one that's writing it. It would be like Tolkien sitting down and telling you, no, here's what's going to happen at the end of the book, which I haven't even finished writing yet. But I know how it's going to end because I'm the author of the book. God is the author of reality. He is the one writing this story on the universe as his tablet. And, and we get to see what's going to happen at the end. So let's come to Daniel chapter 8. And what I'm going to do is kind of remind you of the big picture. And then I want to unfold the history before we actually read the chapter for you. But the pattern out of Daniel is this, that we've seen him, him talk about how there's four earthly kingdoms. There's the Babylonian kingdom, the medo Persian kingdom, which really becomes just the Persian kingdom, um, the Greek, and then the Roman kingdom. And then he says, and then there'll be this eternal kingdom of God. So that's the framework of the future that Daniel has laid out for us. Now, in particular, in Daniel chapter eight, we're gonna focus on the medo Persian and the Greek empire. That's basically the part that's encapsulated by the... Um, the vision that Daniel's given here in chapter 8. And the main point for Israel was this, that a crisis was coming 400 years after this was written. A crisis, persecution from a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes. Now, you're going to have a little bit of a history lesson, right? For most of us, it's like, history, what's that? I forgot about it until I had to, you know, try and help my kid in history class or something. So there's this guy named Antiochus Epiphanes, A madman who would bring upon one of the worst periods of persecution in Israel's history where their very survival would be threatened, and God needed to give them a promise that they would be able to endure it and persevere it and that he would bring it to an end. That's the point of Daniel 8 for Israel, but the point for us is so that we will know that God is faithful to his promises that he has made to us. All right, so here's the way the history unfolded, okay? And I'm going to try and uh, sum it up as, as kind of in a nutshell as we can just to get the pieces and I want you to think, okay, what if, if you're living kind of at the end part of this and you don't have Daniel 8, right? So you're Israel and you're living in exile. You see, God, why was Israel in exile? They were disobedient, right? He warned them back in Deuteronomy. He was like, look, if you're faithful, you're going to stay in the land. I'm going to bless you. If you're unfaithful, I'm going to send you. There's people going to come and they're going to take you off and you're going to live in their land until you repent and then I'll bring you back. Right, So that was laid out at the very beginning, and they kept being disobedient. So he says, okay, I'm going to send you over there. Right, so they're, they're living in exile um, in Babylon, and there was a reason I was saying that, and I don't remember what it was now. This happens at my age. It's like a train of thought and just kind of went down a side rail. Um, maybe if I look at my notes. Probably not. Oh, goodness. Okay, so they're in Babylon. They've been exiled there because of their disobedience, and I'll remember why I brought that up here in a few minutes. Um, and what we see is going to happen is that the the uh, the Medes rise up. So if you kind of remember your map of the, the Middle East, you've got um, over here is kind of where the Babylonian Empire is and Israel's kind of on this end and Egypt over here, right? So I could have had a map with a laser pointer, but then you guys would have thought I was a total nerd. Um, like Christian, <laughs> total nerd. <laughs> I might be more of a nerd of him. I'm just trying to look better. Um, and so what you see happen is that the Medes kind of come down out of the hills and they start to defeat, and so they're the first ones that start to push on Babylon, and then the Persians come down out of the hills, team up with the Medes, end up kind of being the big brother, and they completely take over the whole empire all the way down into Egypt. And so now you've got this Persian empire with kind of the Medes are the little brother, but they're not really a whole big part of it. And so that kind of all unfolds, and what they do, see Babylon, their policy was basically... You have to submit to us no matter what it takes. The Persians came along and Cyrus the Great, um, which we know is prophesied in scripture as well, he's the one that um, decreed for Israel to be able to return, right? Cyrus the Great rises up and he's the the one who expanded the Persian empire the greatest. And so Cyrus says, you know what? I'm going to have a different policy. I'm going to let you worship whoever your God is. I think that's a better policy for ruling my empire. And that's why when we see in Ezra and Nehemiah, the, the Jews return to the land, and they're able to build the, rebuild Jerusalem, rebuild the temple, all of that. That's because of the Persians' perspective on the people that they rule over. <coughs> and that becomes important for the, what's going to happen here. And so, sends them back, right? And so, that, that's when they go out of exile. But are they obedient at that point? No, they're still disobedient. They're living back in the land, but they're still disobedient. And then what happens is this new empire comes on the scene, and so out of the west comes Alexander the Great. And Alexander the Great basically for the first time unites all the Greek city-states, and he comes down through Turkey. And see, the Greeks really hated the Persians. Um, I'm not going to ask if you saw it, but the movie 300 kind of documents when the Persians invaded. He tossed me that water before I <coughs> choke myself <into> a it. <coughs> Thank you. <coughs> Just hold that thought. my throat's out of practice. So the Persians multiple times tried to invade the Greek Empire and wreaked a lot of destruction. And so the Greeks were pretty ticked off and said, we're going to destroy the Persians. And so Alexander the Great comes and in about six years takes over the entire Persian Empire. Right? We've all heard of Alexander the Great. He dominates and ends up invading India and then he dies. And when he dies, four of his generals divide up his kingdom. Now, one thing to know about him is he had a new policy, right? Each empire kind of had its way of how are we going to rule things. His policy was, you know what? Greek culture is the best culture in the world, so we should bring Greek culture wherever we go. Now, he didn't force it down people's throats, but it was kind of the idea that, hey, everyone's going to buy into it because it's the best thing ever, right? I mean, Americans are kind of that way, right? That's why people don't like us in other parts of the world because we think we're the greatest and we kind of like, oh, this isn't as good as in and out burgers, right? Californians are even worse, right? We go there oh, you're, it's not as good as in and out which it's not, so let's just be honest. Um, and so Alexander brings Greek culture, and so he dies, it gets split up into four, and one of his generals basically gets to control the part, and so of the four divisions, there's one that's kind of important to us for biblical history, they're known as the Seleucids. King Seleucus, or sorry, General Seleucius. he becomes the first king of that section of the empire, and it basically covers from Israel and Turkey on this side, not Egypt, that's a separate section, all the way over to Persia. So it's a big chunk uh, of the kingdom is under Seleucus. And so for the most part, they're just kind of, you know, there, there's Greek culture that's there, and they're, they're not pushing it until the eighth king. The eighth king of the Seleucus is this guy named Antiochus Epiphanes. And he is evil incarnate. He is wicked beyond belief. And he decides that Greek culture is the best thing in the world. And in fact, it's so good, I'm gonna ram it down your throat. And the Jews are like, uh-uh, we're not gonna do it. And he goes, Well then, I'm gonna exterminate you. You're either gonna repent or sorry, you're either gonna to convert to Greek religion, Greek culture, everything, or I'm gonna kill you. And he brings us intense persecution that starts about one hundred seventy AD and it culminates. The worst part hits in about one sixty eight. Did I say AD? It's B C about 168 B.C. And what he does in 168 is he devastates Jerusalem. And he comes into the temple in Jerusalem and he offers a pig on the altar. Right, The, the most offensive thing that he could do. And then he sets up a temple to Zeus there. Now the reason, see he was named Antiochus when he was born, Antiochus IV. He took the name Epiphanes on as an ending, which means God manifest. You see, he thought of himself as Zeus incarnate, or at least Zeus's representative on earth. Humble guy, right? Oh, sarcasm. Yeah, picking up on it. So he sets up a temple to Zeus, which really is a temple to himself, in the midst of the temple of God, right? And how offensive this is for them. He prohibits temple worship. He says, no more of that. If you circumcise people, death penalty. Right, so the sign of the covenant for Israel now has a death penalty associated with it. He sells thousands of Jewish families into slavery. He finds every copy of the scriptures that he can and he destroys them. If you're found in possession of one, death penalty for you. Right, the persecution. This is incredibly intense to the point of where you start to wonder: Are the people even going to survive? And I, I say all those words, and it's it's so hard. I think for us to put us into that context. So just think for a minute. If, if we had all of a sudden a ruler who was overseeing us that said, you can no longer worship in churches. You can no longer gather to worship at all. And in fact, in all of your places where you worship, I'm actually going to desecrate it with something that, that is the most offensive thing that I can to you. And not only that, but if you baptize anybody, I will kill you for it. Right, The sign of the covenant, of the reality that you're in the covenant now, you'll, you'll die if you actually do that. If you have a copy of the Bible, right? We've, we've got Bibles on our shelves all over the place, right? Can you imagine there was a time when possession of that had a penalty of the death penalty, right? You, loss of life for possessing that. And the, the last thing that he did was he used every form of torture he could to try to get the Jews to recant their religion. And sadly, many did. Many of them just said, fine, we're just gonna give in and we're gonna become like the rest of them. Now imagine you're the Jews living under Antiochus Epiphanes and you don't have Daniel 8. You're just saying, God, are you there? Are you in control? Do you know what's happening? You don't know, you know, I don't know what's going on. But then on the other hand, let's read Daniel 8 and see what it would be like to actually have it here and to understand what God was doing. He begins, In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me And when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel. Oh, sorry, appeared to me Daniel after that which appeared to me at the first. And I saw in the vision, when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, I was at the Ulai Canal. Okay, so this is about 550 BC. This is still during the Babylonian Empire. Daniel's about 69, 70 years old at the time, right? So getting on in years, it's about the end of the Babylonian Empire when all of this has happened. So I raised my eyes and I saw and behold a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. Right, remember the Medes and the Persians? The Medes came up first, but they were the smaller empire. The Persians came second, they were the bigger one. Right? Very clear, exactly, very specific. And I saw the ram charging westward, right, because remember they came out of the east. They charged westward, northward, and southward. No beast could stand before him. There was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. And as I was considering, now a male goat came from the west, across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. Probably a picture of how fast this happened with the Greeks. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. Alexander the Great, he came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath, right? Remember the Greeks really hated the Persians, right? Powerful wrath here. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was one who would rescue, there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great, right? Alexander, we know, took over the whole thing. But when he was strong, the great horn was broken. When did Alexander die at the height of his his power? It wasn't when he got weak later in life. Instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven, right? Greek, uh, Greek empire got divided into four parts. Out of one of them, this would be the Seleucids, came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. It grew even to the host of heaven and some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. Talking about the persecution of God's people. It became great, even as great of the, as the prince of the host. That is that, that they tried to set themselves up in comparison to God. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown, and a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression. It will throw truth to the ground, it will act and prosper. And then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, the giving over of the sanctuary of the host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For twenty-three hundred evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. Right, so it's this horrible persecution, 400 years before it happens, and it's exactly what happens with the guys I just unfolded for you in the history, right? I mean, can you imagine that you're somewhere along the way in the 400 years, you're 200 years in, you're like, oh, wow, half of this has already happened. You're 300 years in, you're like, more of it's still happening, exactly the way it said, the division of the empire. And then you're like, oh, no, right? I remember the end of the vision. Like, as we start to get towards the end of this, this is when it's going to get really ugly, and so when Antiochus Epiphany starts his persecution, the people would be like, how long? And God said, I've told you how long. It's going to be about six years. It's a long time, but it's not forever. 2,300 days is about how long it's going to be until the temple is restored. And when I, Daniel, verse 15, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. Right? It's amazing for us, right? We can look at this and we're like, oh, We know history, right? And go on Wikipedia and look it up. Oh, that's exactly how it happened, right? But Daniel's like, I don't know what this is about. Behold, there stood one before me having the appearance of a man, and I heard the man's voice between the banks of the Uli, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. Right, Daniel needs to get clued in. So he sends Gabriel to do it. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face, but he said to me, understand, O son of man, the vision is for the time of the end. Now, often people have taken this to think that, oh, so this is something that's still like off in the future, but it's talking about the end of this period of persecution, the end of the four kingdoms, right? Because it's where the the kingdom that's made without hands, the eternal reign of Christ is going to be coming and is initiated. And so it's, it's talking about that time that leads right up to that. He says, and when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me and made me stand up and said, behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with two horns, these are the kings of Medea and Persia. The goat is the king of Greece, the great horn between his eyes is the first king, right? It's all very specific there for us. As for the horn that was broken in place of the four which four others arise? Four kingdoms shall arise from his one nation, but not with his power. Right? None of the four kingdoms of Greece when it split up were ever as good as the original one. At the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face. now speaking about Antiochus. One who understands riddles, really best way to understand that is intrigue and deception. He was a very deceptive and manipulative guy. He shall arise, and his power shall be great, but not by his own power. He shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand. In his own mind, he shall become great. In his own mind, he shall become great. He named himself God manifest, right? Very specific. Without warning, he shall destroy many. He shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. Antiochus Epiphanes did not die in battle, did not die by somebody killing him, but he died by disease. Right, it wasn't by human hand. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision for it refers to many days from now. Now remember, the many days from now were for Daniel. Four hundred years. Think about what was happening four hundred years ago. We're talking one hundred and fifty years before the Declaration of Independence. Right? Sixteen hundreds, like that that's a long time ago. Imagine someone in 1600, God gives them a vision of something and says, okay, now I want you to write it and seal it up because you know a few hundred years from now, someone's going to need this information. Just the fact that it would get preserved. I can't imagine writing something that would get preserved 400 years from now. right? And God preserves it so that they would have the confidence when it came to pass exactly as God said it would. And if you notice, the reason God brings the persecution to pass is because of their ongoing transgression. You see, Daniel foresees the return from exile, but he also foresees that in their return from exile, they're going to continue to be rebellious against God. And we're going to see in chapter 9 next week that that's exactly what leads Daniel to begin to pray, God have mercy upon us, because we continue to be a rebellious people Now, a couple of observations as we look at this. The first one is this. God's timetable doesn't look anything like ours. Right? He tells Daniel, okay, here's something that's going to happen 400 years from now. Let's write it down for someone else. And I I think, I can't even comprehend 400 years. I try to, but in our limited scope, and and this is so often the case for us, that when we think of the things that are so uncertain, we think in days and weeks and years and four-year presidential election cycles and, right, and these things just make us so uncertain, like, what's going to happen? And God says, no, when you, when you stretch it out to kind of my view of everything, it's not quite such a big deal. But the amazing thing is he cares about your situation, right? He cares about your little thing that's disturbing you. And yet he says, but you know what? In light of the big picture, it's actually not as bad as you think. And I am the one that understands the beginning from the end. So that's the first thing. God's timetable doesn't look at anything like ours. The other thing is that prophecy is the unfolding of God's plan, right? I said earlier he is the author of it. He talks about how it is his indignation, how it is at the appointed time. God's not just saying, hey, Daniel, I can see the future, and I'll tell you what's going to happen. He says, this is what my plan is going to look like and how it's going to unfold, and I'm going to reveal it to you, Daniel. Daniel. The other thing that we see here is with Antiochus Epiphanes, we see just a picture of the same thing that's happened over and over and over through history, that there are leaders who exalt themselves, exalt themselves to the point of trying to stand against God. We've seen multiple ones in the book itself, right, within Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar, God did to him, humbled him. He repented. Belshazzar does the same thing, doesn't repent. Right, we just see over and over and the, the thing is that you know some people are like, well is this a prediction of what's going to happen in the future And I would say, no this is a prediction of specifically what happens with Antiochus Epiphanies but it's also a picture of what has been happening throughout history in this battle that we're in. You see there is a cosmic war between our God and the, and the, the enemy and the, the, uh, the forces of darkness versus the forces of light. And we see that in that battle, in that war, there are different skirmishes, different battles along the way, and they all look about the same. right? Satan tries to rise up some leader and that leader then tries to crush God's people and we see it over and over and it didn't end with the closing of the scriptures. right This is the story of history that's continued on is that Satan continues to try to crush. And to crush and to crush. So, yes, this is specific for Antiochus and what happened at that point, but it's also telling us this is what's happening over and over, and take confidence that God is the one who will protect us and persevere and lead us through. You see, when we look to the future, we need to realize there is a final battle coming. And when that final battle comes, Jesus will overcome and will bring the new heavens and the new earth, right? And we look forward to that day with a promise that's similar to the confidence they must have had to take of, okay, there's going to be a time when the temple is going to be rededicated, right? This desecration is going to come to an end at a certain point. And we have a similar promise to hold on to, and that is that there is a new heavens and a new earth coming, that we will have resurrection bodies, and that is coming. We have a promise in Christ that there is no judgment for all of us who have trusted in him, That there is a resurrection to come into this new heaven and new earth. And in that new heaven and new earth, there will be no sin, no disease, no more destruction, no more pain. And we have those promises to hold on to now in the midst of the journey. In the midst of the darkness. Just like for for those that had to live through the persecution under Antiochus. They were able to hold on to the promise of God that it, it will come to an end. We get to the last verse and it says, I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for many days. Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. I think when Daniel says he didn't understand it, he doesn't mean like he didn't get it. He means he doesn't understand why God would do this. And I, and I see in this just the humanity of Daniel and the, his heart of, of grieving for people that aren't even connected to him. And Chris Hay was talking earlier this week, and he says, I I just can't help thinking about Hezekiah and how Hezekiah responded in like an opposite way. Hezekiah was going to die, and he prayed to God, and God says, okay, I'm going to let you live 15 more years, and he says, awesome. And then Hezekiah lets the Babylonians come in, right? This is previous history. Let's the Babylonians come in and see everything. And so then we have the next verse up here that it says Isaiah then comes to Hezekiah and he says, Hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming when all that's in your house, that which your fathers have stopped up till this day, stored up till this day, shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who shall be born to you shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the king, palace of the king of Babylon. If someone told you that, you'd probably be like, Oh no. You'd be like Daniel, right? I hope. Appalled. Look what Hezekiah says. Oh, the word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. Why is it good? Why not, if there will be peace and security in my days? Hezekiah's like, yeah, I don't care that my kids are going to be eunuchs in the Pass of Babylon. I don't care at all because it's going to happen after I'm gone. And I just started to think, am I more like Hezekiah or more like Daniel? That when I look at things that are happening around us, when I look at the uncertainties, when I, when I look at my children, do I, do I think, God, I just beg you to have mercy upon us that, that we might live, in the, live faithfully? Or do I say, you know what? It's probably not going to happen until after I'm gone, so it's not a big deal. Right? We live in a society that, that is heading in a certain direction, and it's in all likelihood going to get worse and worse for us. And how do we look at that? Do we look at it like Daniel... Or like Hezekiah. You see, just a reminder that this is why he gives it to us. The next slide there is the one that we saw earlier. He told his people. Next one. Hopefully. Yep. God has told his people some of the chapters that would come to pass in the middle of the story so that we will have ultimate confidence in the chapters that he promises to come to pass at the end of the story. And I just thought, you know what? We need to rejoice in the fact that Jesus reigns. Right? It doesn't matter what happens in the next election, Jesus reigns. It doesn't matter what happens with the economy, Jesus reigns. It doesn't matter what happens with your job, Jesus still reigns. It doesn't matter what happens with your marriage, Jesus reigns. It doesn't matter what is going to happen with your kids, Jesus reigns. Right? He is in control. He is the one that has given us the confidence. And because we know that this happened in the past exactly the way, right? You might have been bored by some of the history, but it happened exactly the way that he said it would, gives us confidence that the part that he says is going to happen way down the road, we know is going to happen. And I couldn't think of any better way to end the service than for us to read the end of Romans chapter 8. So if you'd stand with me, I'm I'm going to read this together it'll be up on the screens you see we get to Romans chapter 8 and Paul says this is the gospel this is the reality of what God has done he has called us and he's justified us and he's glorified us and he says so what shall we say to these things if God is for us who can be against us he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all how will he not also with him graciously give us all things who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for the sake for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. I just love how he ends here. Let's read it together. No.